A reading from Genesis, beginning with the 34th chapter and the first verse. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled her sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. 
And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob, Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were one hundred and eighty years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And his brothers saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him in a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianites traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning we continue to move forward in our journey with Jacob. You'll recall that last week we looked at Genesis 32 and 33, which describe the episode when Jacob wrestles with God beside the river Jabbok followed by his reunion with his brother Esau, who forgives Jacob when he returns after 20 years. And in today's passage, we have a few more elements of Jacob's story filled in. We read about the birth of Jacob's final son, Benjamin, the death of his wife, Rachel, who dies as she gives birth to Benjamin, as well as the death of his father, Isaac, And then probably the most familiar of what we read, the story of Jacob and his technicolor coat. However, our reading picked up today 
right where we left off last week in Genesis, at the beginning of chapter 34, which describes what is a very sordid tale on multiple levels. I'm sure you'll agree. This story is definitely a B-side from the life of Jacob, which certainly never gets covered in our three-year lectionary for obvious reasons. In fact, I would venture to guess that not a single one of us has ever heard a sermon on the rape of Dinah. And I'll only be covering it in service of a larger goal here. But let me clarify a few things about this story from chapter 34. Believe it or not, in those days, one strategy that some men would employ for obtaining a wife was through rape. I'm not saying this was kind of the majority strategy, but it happened. And what made it possible was that a widely accepted response to such an incident when it happened was that the woman's family could marry her off to her rapist but for a higher bride price than she would have normally garnered. Now, I know this must seem ridiculous to our 21st century sensibilities, and rightly so. Gloria Allred would have a field day with this. But I should say that just because there were such provisions, in no way justified, even in those days, this practice of betrothal by rape. Clearly, Jacob's sons are outraged by it. As in 34.7, they call it an outrageous thing that must not be done. But what can, one can imagine how this might have seemed, how the, the normal solution to these situations in those days might have seemed like the best solution to deal with a terrible situation, given how women were devalued in that culture, and because rape would typically ruin the woman's prospects of being married to anyone else, which, of course, was so important for her survival. Does that make sense? So I'm not defending it. I'm just explaining it. And so uh, Sheshem, or however Luke pronounced it better than I do, but Sheshem had taken advantage of this sort of flawed norm in that culture, but Jacob's sons schemed to use the expectation of a higher bride price in order to exact revenge. When Sheshem's father, Hamor, has the audacity to try to turn this situation, that should have resulted in enmity, try to turn it into not only a marriage, but a marriage alliance and a trade alliance between Jacob's family and his people, they say to Jacob, ask uh, for any bride price you want. When Jacob's sons perceive all this, they cleverly demand that all the men of Sheshem be circumcised. You'll recall that circumcision was a practice God had instituted for this chosen family of his that would become a nation. It was a means of marking them as his own and setting them apart from others. So on the surface, this request probably seems somewhat logical to Hamor, that they would ask for the men of Sheshem to become circumcised if they wanted to marry in. But when all the men of Sheshem agreed to be circumcised, which would have been quite debilitating to them physically for a number of days, 
On the third day, Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, take advantage. And they go into the city with their swords and kill every male who's powerless at that moment to fight back. They take all their wives and children and plunder everything they had. But this action of returning evil for evil, not to mention using the sign of their covenant with God to do atrocious harm, this causes Jacob deep distress. And yet Simeon and Levi avenging the rape of their sister is not the only instance of depraved behavior by Jacob's children that we read about today, is it? In 36.4, we learn that Jacob's sons had been worshiping foreign gods. These were presumably the ones that Rachel had stolen from her father Laban, actually. Then further down, 36.22 mentions how Jacob's son Reuben lays with his father's concubine, Bilhah, who's the mother of two of his brothers, or half-brothers. And then, of course, in chapter 37, out of jealousy that their brother Joseph is their father's favorite, Jacob's older ten sons conspire to get rid of him, kill him. And though there's some intervention, they still manage to sell Joseph. They don't kill him, but they still manage to sell Joseph as a slave to a caravan of Ishmaelites. With all this nefarious conduct by Jacob's sons, one cannot help but empathize when imagining the pain and anguish living through all of this must have brought upon Jacob. However, what has to make matters worse is that in most of these instances, Jacob is watching the sins of the father, his sins, the sins of his family, play out in the lives of his sons. The sins of the father is a concept mentioned in many passages of scripture from the Old Testament including both uh, presentations of the Ten Commandments. And this principle acknowledges the observable reality that in addition to all humans being sinful, many of our particular sinful patterns are learned and specifically learned from the context that we grew up in. Thus, every family will have patterns of sin that continue from generation to generation are repeated, though in some cases the sins may mutate from one generation to another or even skip over one generation and manifest in the next. Now, certainly it is not the case that we will repeat all of the sins of our parents, nor will our struggles be completely limited to what they may struggle or have struggled with. But the Bible's multiple mentions of the sins of the father highlights the undeniable reality that children are more susceptible to repeat the sins of their parents and grandparents, who in turn were more likely to repeat the sins of their parents and grandparents, and so on and on and on back. Well, this is in large part what Jacob is being confronted with in these chapters we read today. While some of his son's sins 
are novel or new, quite a few echo the sins of the generations before them. For example, I can't think of Jacob exacting vengeance like Simeon and Levi do for the rape of their sister, returning evil for evil. But their scheming and trickery that they employed to pull it off, well, that had been the way of Jacob for years. And the seeds of, quite frankly, sociopathy or a lack of empathy that their action actions would have required in order to slay a whole town of men. That can also be seen in Jacob's disposition toward others earlier in his life, not caring how his actions affected anybody else. And yet it's not just Jacob's sins being repeated here. There's also some behaviors of Laban, who'd been Jacob's surrogate father for 20 years, And these sons, surrogate grandfather, some of them are also repeated, both in the way that the sons take over the negotiation of their sister's bride price, as well as their bad faith agreement, right, around the bride price. These remind us of how their grandmother, Rebecca's negotiations had been taken over by her brother Laban, and how Laban had agreed with Jacob to a bride price for Rachel, in bad faith, not followed through. That's not all. After that, we have Reuben laying with his father's concubine. And this would have been considered not only incestuous, but it would have been viewed as an attempt to usurp Jacob's authority as the head of the household. Of Reuben making himself, asserting himself as the head of the household which is essentially what Jacob had done in stealing his brother's birthright and blessing. But as we said, Jacob has certainly not moved beyond all of his character flaws because in chapter 37, we see him repeating his father's sin of favoritism. Despite how much it had hurt Jacob that his father Isaac had favored his brother Esau and caused Jacob to be jealous, we see Jacob unabashedly favor Joseph, which leads to grave consequences for everyone involved, and I do mean everyone. And then finally, at the end of chapter 37, a final sin from the way past comes home to roost. This was a sin of Jacob's grandparents, Abram and Sarah. As Joseph's brother sell Joseph into slavery to none other than the Ishmaelites. Now the Ishmaelites are a people who literally would not have existed except for the faithlessness of Sarah, whose impatience caused her to ask her husband Abram to lie with her handmaiden Hagar. Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. But after the birth of, of Isaac, right, the now favored son, from Sarah. Sarah had Abram drive both Hagar and Ishmael away into poverty, and they became these separate people, the Ishmaelites, which of course is where the religion of Islam ultimately emerges from. So now the Ishmaelites, ironically, are taking away Jacob's favored son.
So in our passage today, Jacob comes off his wrestling match with God and his reconciliation with Esau to be confronted with one generational sin after another. His conversion, his wrestling with God, had done nothing to thwart that cycle of generational sin. And this is because, first of all, as we said last week, that conversion hadn't made Jacob perfect, right? It hadn't instantly rid him of all his sinful habits. But also, by the time it happened, Jacob, you know, by the time Jacob finally turned to the Lord in earnest, the bulk of his children's formative years had already passed. Particularly his older sons who would have been at this point in their teens and early 20s. All of those years before Jacob wrestled with God at Javik, they had learned how to go about life from a father who was a manipulative, self-absorbed, narcissistic schemer. That ain't going to bear good fruit. But what this portion of Jacob's story highlights, frankly, for all of us, is the reality of heartache that inevitably comes with having children. The inevitability of it, of not just watching them make mistakes, but in addition to that, being unable to deny how obviously we've contributed to it. It's rough, isn't it? Because of human sin, because we are all sinful, this dynamic of sins of the father will be a reality in every parent-child relationship to some extent, no matter what. Whether the child is young or an adolescent now or an adult, So all of us should be able to relate to this part of Jacob's story because many of us are parents. Some of us are even grandparents. But also, all of us are children of somebody. Now, when it comes to any connection between Jacob's specific mistakes with his children and what we've done or experienced, we may be tempted to deny that there are very strong parallels. For example, with Jacob's most glaring continuing, continuing struggle of favoring one child over another, perhaps we don't feel like we've done that or dealt with that in our family of origin. Perhaps we feel like we were you know, loved equally or whatever. But Craig Barnes, who I've drawn on a lot in this series, he helpfully reframes this dynamic between Jacob and his sons in a manner that makes it relevant to all of us. You may remember that two weeks ago, when we looked at Jacob's marriages to both Leah and Rachel, Barnes suggested that Rachel represents who we think we marry or our ideal of a spouse that we usually project onto our real spouse while Leah represents the person we actually marry, whom God wants to help us to learn to love and accept, which Jacob eventually does. Well, similarly, Barnes suggests that every child has both Joseph and his brothers wrapped inside of them. 
He says the Joseph part is the part we love the most. This could be a variety of characteristics for a variety of reasons. It could be some potential we see in the child to fulfill a dream that we didn't. It could be a part that's like us or like someone we love, right? It could be something in the child that makes us proud or amazes us. However, there will be some parts of the child that we don't feel as favorable about, relatively speaking. And so there will be some parts of the child that we affirm more than others, period. Inevitable. It's just human nature. It's part of being a human and limited, right? And yet that reality sets up an internal tension, right? In the child, similar to the tension between Joseph and his brothers, because the child will be aware, at least subconsciously, that there are, while you may affirm one part or two parts or whatever, that there is more to them than the parts that you really favor. That'll be an awareness and that'll create a tension. Now, What every child needs because of this, what every child needs is a parent to love every part equally, right? Or else, these less desirable parts have a tendency to take over, just like in this story. As a result of Jacob favoring Joseph, his other sons mutiny, and Jacob ironically ends up with all the sons that he doesn't prefer, and he's without the one he does prefer, what he does like. And Barnes explains about this, that that the reason for this is because evil is never overcome by ignoring it. It's only overcome by love, right? And so this explains where the need for God, for every human being comes in, right? If every child needs a parent to love every part equally, and no parent on earth is capable of that, This is why everybody needs God. Because only our Heavenly Father can love every part of us equally. And that is the gospel, isn't it? He loves the great parts of us, the not so great parts of us, and everything in between, unconditionally. So ultimately, every child needs God who accepts every part of them without preference. And yet... You may think, well, geez, just throw my hands up. What can we do here? Well, this doesn't mean there's nothing we can do to add or detract from our child's well-being. Not at all. Whether they're young or an adult now, we can make a difference. There's a real chance to positively impact their lo- the life of our child or our grandchild. And the way we do that is when we allow God to help us to be at least more like him more loving or accepting of them and all of them than we would be without his help, right? So we're never going to perfectly imitate God, but the more that we do, the greater positive impact we'll have. The less that we do, the more damage we'll do. And this has to be learned. Like Jacob had to learn to love Leah. If I could put a finer point on it, the place we really have to get is we have to get to the place of wanting God's best for them, 
rather than what we think is best for them. That's actually where the rubber meets the road. This is the most important factor in determining the extent of good or harm that a parent may do for any child. The key question is whose best do they want for the child? We all want what's best for our kids, everybody. But do we want our best for them? Or do we want God's best for them? There's always a difference. Do we want our preferences and dreams, our wisdom for their lives to be fulfilled? Or do we want God's plans and dreams and wisdom to be fulfilled in their lives? And the reason this one question is so consequential, right? whether we want our kids to do and be what we think is best or what God says is best, what God's plans are, The reason it's so consequential is because so long as we want our kids to do to be to do what we want, to be something for us, to be something that does make us proud, to be something that feeds our ego or makes us feel okay. So long as we're operating from that place, our approach is going to primarily be one of control toward them and nagging and everything else that goes with it, right? And when we do that, when we seek to control another human being, even if we have some level of authority in their lives, that's actually trusting ourselves, not trusting God. That's actually faithlessness, as natural as it may seem. Even though we may feel like we're helping in truth, will really only be inflaming that inner tension within them that they're not fully accepted. And so in the long run, it will not bear good fruit. Though I should say, when I say it won't bear good fruit, this doesn't mean that it won't give us a kid that the world thinks is just great, right? Some, some kids respond to this approach by rebelling, right? But other kids become incredibly compliant, right? Like become exactly what that parent wants them to be, right? It's kind of like that contrast between the prodigal son and the older brother, right? Both are equally wounded and depraved, right? See, the problem is that the successful kid outcome is likely to have a weak sense of self, Right? Because they've been given their sense of self. They haven't let their true God-given sense of self hasn't been allowed to flourish. You're going to be who dad or mom wants you to be. So these are the realities we see Jacob being confronted with at, at this stage of his journey. And we can see some signs of maturation, but then other areas where he, he just still doesn't get it. Now, at least one shift that had evidently occurred for Jacob since his conversion experience or whatever it was at Jabbok was he seems to have come to a better understanding of the extent of authority he does have to influence his son spiritually. Now, in his own life, there had been seeds of faith planted, right, by his parents and by his grandparents 
who raised him in the faith. And those seeds had mattered. They had pointed Jacob to God. And yet even despite those seeds, as we've seen, Jacob still needed to walk out that journey on his own, right? For that faith to become his own. Well, in contrast to the way his parents and grandparents planted seeds of faith, to this point in Genesis, we have heard nothing of Jacob giving two rips about the spiritual lives of his kids. There's been no mention of it. Kids are there, they're hanging around. But there is still some time. Maybe he doesn't have the same authority he had when they were younger, but they're still in his household. So after two of Jacob's sons behave so awfully at the end of chapter 34, slaying a whole town of people, as the story moves into chapter 35, God leads Jacob to exercise what authority he does have remaining. And what he has remaining is that Jacob can still point his sons to God and share his own experience of God, what he's learned. So Jacob does that. He takes his son to Bethel, which, remember, is where God had first encountered him in a very personal way, right? Before get, making it to Laban's. And there he shows them how to worship God, right? And he invites them. He puts away the idols that were probably given to him with his, given to them with his approval by Rachel. So that's what Jacob still has the authority to do, to point his sons to God and share what he knows of the Lord. But what this part of the story demonstrates also is a growing awareness by Jacob that where he can make the most difference, even more than doing that, where he can make the most difference in the spiritual lives of his children is by seeking to tend to where he has the most authority, which is over himself, his own spiritual life. He can seek to live faithfully before God himself, which he does, worshiping God there in chapter 36. That's the greatest, most powerful witness that he could ever have for his son. I'm sure they weren't used to seeing him behave that way in much of their upbringing. So Jacob recognizes he cannot ultimately control or coerce his sons into living by faith. And similarly, we can point our children to, we can point our children um, to, to God to the extent that they've given us the authority to do that, depending on their age. And we can share our experience and we can model living humbly before God ourselves. That's how we can make a difference. This isn't just about children, people we love. If you don't have children, people in your life that you want to know God. But ultimately, we have to also give them the same dignity God gives to them and to us, which is to make their own choices, to live out the script of their lives. So in this way, at this altar in chapter 36, Jacob imitates the faith, actually, of his grandfather Abraham, who when God asked him to give up his precious son to him, Isaac, Abraham concerned himself with what he could control, with being faithful to what God asked of him and trusted God to bring about the best results. On the other hand, what chapter 37 reveals with Jacob's favoritism of Joseph 
is that where Jacob still needs to grow is in learning to love and accept his sons as they are at that time. And he doesn't just need to learn it with these older 10 sons. I mean, even with Joseph, we see Jacob reject his God-given dreams. Joseph shares his dreams and his dad's thinking, you're nuts, shuts it down, right? Because they clearly don't match up with Jacob's view of either reality or Jacob's view of his son's future. And with this, rather than reminding of his, reminding of, of his, reminding us of his grandfather, Abraham, Jacob reminds us instead of his mother, Rebecca. You recall it by trying to engineer the fulfillment of her dreams for Jacob as her favorite son. She ended up losing him and his brother, really, for 20 years. The Lord used that circumstance to remove Jacob from that toxicity and made him his own man until 20 years later, he returned having become a man, but in many ways in no thanks to Rebecca or, or Isaac. Well, similarly, a generation later here, God is removing Joseph from the hindrance of his father and brothers in order to replant Joseph where God's plans for him can be fulfilled. So Jacob has more lessons to learn, some of them the hard way, and he will learn more moving forward, which will bear much better fruit in subsequent chapters. But my hope is that the story of Israel and his family will encourage us to surrender even to grieve, if necessary, our own designs for our kids or for those we love, whatever age they are. And that we would allow God to begin cultivating in us a desire for his best for them. This is what it means to live by faith as a parent. It's not beating them over the head with the Bible. It's not overprotecting them. It's seeking God's help to imitate him, imitate God toward this child and trust that God will take care of them. God's more invested in their well-being than we are. But notice that living this way requires that we resist grasping for certainty. That's what a lot of our controlling is. We want to be certain. We want to secure their future for them. It requires that we relinquish certainty and frankly, embrace mystery. We don't know God's plans. Learn to accept that. Be open to what God may have planned that our minds couldn't possibly conceive. So before I close, I want to just drive this point home in one more way by drawing your attention briefly to that gospel passage we heard. It's kind of a strange time in the year to hear an Easter passage. I had us read the eight-verse account of Jesus' resurrection from Mark's gospel. Well, Mark's account of Easter differs from the other three gospels. You may know this because it's not followed by any accounts of appearances by the risen Lord. It just ends. His gospel ends right there at verse 8. And Barnes talks about how bothersome this has been to believers over the years, to the extent that the early church was so uncomfortable with this ending 
that they added to it. It's true. In most translations of the Bible, you'll find 12 more verses after our passage, verses 9 to 20, included in Mark 16, but they almost always have an asterisk next next to them because they don't appear in the earliest manuscripts of Mark we have. And, And scholars across the board agree that they were added on probably in the second century. Some of you may remember I did a whole sermon on that back in June of last year. But Barnes suggests the reason we've never been happy about what Mark has done to us with the ending of his gospel is because we want every story to have resolution. We want to know what happens. I mean, don't you hate it when a movie or a story ends, you know, book ends that you're, you're, it ends like too soon, it feels like, without telling you everything that happens, it drives me nuts, Right? Even if it's like, oh yeah, that was the right way to do it. But man, I just want to know. All Mark's ending gives us is this angel promising the Jesus followers that Jesus has gone ahead to Galilee and they'll find him there. But what, what Barnes points out, which is just so brilliant, is that by stopping there, Mark projects that position that the followers of Jesus are in at that moment into our own lives of being called to act not by sight, but by faith and in hope to go to Galilee and see. So how will our children end up, our grandchildren? Will they ever find God? Will the the faith we model ever be made their own? Will they ever live into what's God's best for them? Well, the Lord is beckoning us to trust him about this. But trusting him doesn't just mean holding out some pie in the sky hope that things turn out okay. No, the angel told Jesus' followers to do something. They needed to go to Galilee themselves and see. That was the act of faith there. And so with us, living by faith as parents means seeking to take action by surrendering control to God. And with God's help, learning to love and accept every part of our kids in the way that he does, whether it's with our preferences or not. And that may feel wrong, that may feel insane or too much out of our control, but it's trusting God more than ourselves. And that's the right move because he is the one who has brought his son out from a tomb and raised him to new life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.